with any license, especially in our industry, it's a good tool to have. It's like in tech, some people try to be full stack and learn different programming languages and learn different skill sets there. But for us in real estate, I mean, yeah, there's skill sets to learn, but then, you know, having those licenses, if an opportunity comes up, then you can, you know, use that tool in your toolkit and build a business out of it. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Adrian Chu, a real estate broker and investor based in Seattle. In this episode, we'll talk about his transition from working at a high-tech job to crossing the bridge into real estate work full-time. We'll talk about how to get involved with real estate development, as well as how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected Seattle's real estate prices. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday, and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years, and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! All right, Adrian, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. All right. My name is Adrian Chu. I'm based in Seattle. I'm a full stack real estate entrepreneur. My background's in the tech industry. That's how I got the you know, lingo full stack. But right now, so I do brokerage, mortgages, I invest, I develop and build. So just a little bit of everything and you know, have a lot of fun along with doing this. Awesome. Yeah. I met you first through uh, our online forums. You're very big socially on Facebook and whatnot. I was wondering, how did you get in contact with our groups here in the Bay Area? Are you planning on investing here as well? Actually, I got acquainted with Brenda, who created the SF Bay Area Real Estate Club, I believe, a few years ago, just off of LinkedIn. Um, She reached out to me. She told me she worked at Conventus. At that time, I never even heard about Conventus. So she reached out and then you know, like a year or two passed, I ended up having a couple projects that, you know, I worked with uh, Conventus on the financing side of things. So you know, that's how I got acquainted with uh, your community there. Yeah, you know, actually, I traveled to the Bay Area quite a bit and actually lived in the Bay Area back in 2011 to 2012. So have some connections with the area. Got it. And do you want to talk about your real estate investing journey or just your real estate journey in general? Because you did come from a tech background. We're very similar. Both have double E degrees and transitioned into real estate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I I started out becoming very interested in real estate very early on in my life. I'd say around middle school. Uh, That's when I first got a copy of the real estate fundamentals textbook. It's like the textbook for the licensing exam. So it was like in seventh grade and you were reading that in seventh grade? I was reading that in class in seventh grade. And then time kind of passed by when I was, I think when I was 18, I started taking the real class for the licensing exam. And then I decided to take the real estate exam and get my license. When I was 
still a student at the University of Washington. And then so I got my license when I was 19. And then we finished school after that and went into the tech industry. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting to point out, I think, you know, in retrospect, it's a great way to start a real estate investing journey, you know, having a steady income. I can, you know, go into more detail about that later, but it helps, you know, with financing and, you know, trying to, you know, get the initial capital to get started. So kind of moving forward, you know, I started working in tech. I bought my first place in 2012 and just kind of expanded from there. I had friends that wanted to buy real estate. So, you know, with the broker license, I was able to help them do that. So then I continued to invest in the Seattle area, moved on to kind of bigger projects, uh, different, you know, single family fix and flips, rental properties. And then on the brokerage side, I was, you know, doing this as a second full-time job on top of, you know, what I was doing in tech and kind of pivoted the brokerage side of the business to kind of what the market needs were kind of moved into working with international buyers at one point and then, you know, more investor clients and then, you know, there's even retail buyers and sellers and then most recently pivot to doing land acquisition for builders and then listing new construction homes. It's very exciting. And by, you know, working with the builders on the brokerage side, that's where I learned a lot about infill development. And that's how I got into, you know, transitioning from working on fix and flip projects to applying that to building new construction in the Seattle area. Cool, cool. Like what were you doing in the tech field and how were you able to have the free time to do real estate on the side while working a full-time job? Yeah, I, I was uh, working in mostly in the hardware uh, industry, cloud data centers. I would say, you know, real estate would be evenings and weekends, you know, so added up all my time you know after work and both days on the weekends i think a lot of it is just the mentality and how much you want to do it right at that point i wasn't quite ready to quit my tech job and i decided you know i, I wanted to do real estate so i got to treat it like a real full-time job like a second full-time job it wasn't a part-time gig you know i know a lot of people you know they get their real estate license they're you know they have a full-time job they treat it as a part-time gig. I mean, I think it's more about the mentality and how one decides to perceive it, you know, the energy one decides to put into it. Right. So on the weekends, you're probably hosting open houses or you're showing properties to clients. And on the weekdays, you know, during the day, you're like working at a full-time job. That's pretty good. Exactly. It's a lot of work, you know, not a lot of free time, but it, it was fun and it was well worth it. Cool. And when did you start doing your first investments? You said this was in 2012. So you've been working and saving some money a couple of years. Yeah, around 2012. Yeah, yeah, saving some money, bought, bought my first place, and then, you know, kept on buying after that. Early on, I kind of I was focused on, you know, buying and then selling because, you know, properties appreciate, and it ended up, you know, it looked like a pretty sizable number, you know, the gains involved. But then in retrospect, you know, I learned, I would say, five or six years after I started you know, in real estate that, okay, rental properties might be a better idea. So I pursued, you know, to apply the Burr strategy. And I think, you know, that ended up being a better choice because the way, you know, I look at it now is that when you do a flip, it's more like, you know, it's a one-time thing. So it's not truly an investment, 
you buy something, you remodel it, you do something to it, and you sell it. It's like almost like trading time for money instead of a true investment. True. And also, every time you do it, you, you need to find your next deal. It's like a big pain in the butt. Right. You need to find your next deal. And then there's a huge opportunity cost to it, right? If you're doing flips and all your capital is tied down on the project, then you can't buy that rental investment, like the real investment you want to buy, then, you know, there's a huge opportunity cost to it. Yeah. Yeah. So like right now I still do flips. I do spec builds, you know, to sell, but I make it so that it doesn't affect, you know, me pursuing kind of longer term investments. This still happens in parallel, but it's just, I I just, you know, minimize the opportunity costs. Hmm. Do you want to talk about the Burr strategy and how you're able to do it in Seattle? Because I think a lot of people who listen to shows like Bigger Pockets assume you have to have like the 1% rule where you're buying a property where the rents are 1% of the purchase price. I don't see that happening in Seattle because it doesn't happen here in the Bay Area. Yeah, you're right. It's not a true Burr most of the time. I see a lot of online forums where people say, oh, don't buy a rental if it doesn't, you know, meet the 1% rule. And I think, you know, there's merit to it, but it doesn't apply in a lot of markets, especially like in the Bay Area or Seattle. There are opportunities and there have been opportunities. The intent of the Burr strategy, at least for me, because I, you know, when I invest, I try to focus on a balance between cash flow and appreciation with more weight on appreciation and, you know, other potential of the site. So, it really depends on how you approach it. For me, it's just like the idea of Burr is not necessarily being able to cash flow after pulling out, you know, 100% of the money. I just want it to so that there's to minimize the opportunity cost of holding that investment. You know, if if it doesn't cash flow after I Burr, you know, 90 or 100%, it's okay. You know, the the whole point is that I pull most of my capital out and then I can redeploy it for other investments. So, it might not be a true burr, but you know the idea is that by pursuing the burr, it's better than just buying a property outright, you know, 25% down sort of thing. I'm curious on how you're able to pull most of your capital out just because the whole rent to price ratio is kind of low over in these higher neighborhoods like New York, you know, uh, Seattle and the Bay Area. And typically that means that your DTI is also going to be very high, right? So how are you able to pull your capital out by doing the birth strategy in Seattle? Right, good question. So for conventional lending, they care more about the appraised value and less about rental income. But yeah, you do have a good point where rental income, you know, that would help offset the debt associated with the refinance. So the way to do it is to have, you know, additional income to support the DTI. All right, so as of right now, I have, you know, multiple real estate related businesses, you know, in brokerage and lending and, you know, doing the fix and flips. So multiple streams of income that, you know, really helped in getting the conventional loan needed to achieve the refinance part of the Burr strategy. Got it. So are you basically buying a property at like below market value and then doing the rehab on it to make the value of the property a lot higher to then do the refinance? Right. Yeah, exactly. And then the additional thing I've been looking for at some for some properties um, is the development potential of it you know whether that be you know keeping the existing house and building more units on it or you know tearing down the existing house and building more units on it 
Yeah, that's probably like a future play, right? You hold on to it until... That's a future play, exactly. And so the areas I look for, they're more kind of up-and-coming areas. I'm not in a huge rush to you know, redevelop. But Seattle recently, about a year and a half ago, recently changed the zoning for single-family. And, you know, some properties have gotten rezoned to even higher density. And then some single family lots have been upzoned. Basically, you can build two accessory dwelling units in addition to the main house. So basically, any single family zone lot in Seattle, you could build up to three units. Nice. That's basically what we have here in California as well. The kicker is that you can legally rent them out as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not all cities have this right now. In, in the Seattle area, only Seattle and Tacoma have this sort of rule. Every other jurisdiction still doesn't have this. Got it. Do you want to talk about your buying criteria? Like what makes a property attractive to you and what kind of like price points do you look at and what are you expecting to rent for? Again, like I said earlier, it's more about future potential than cash flow. For me, if it's break even, it's already a win. So, you know, as far as kind of the birth strategy, I prefer to stay closer to the city. I live in Seattle, so, you know, I don't want to travel too far to manage a rental property. So, and I believe in the future of Seattle, you know, there's going to be a lot of demand. And as far as appreciation goes, I think, you know, Seattle is going to appreciate more than outlying areas. So as a long-term play, I prefer you know, having the rentals as close to the city as possible. And what are the typical price points you're looking at? Below median price points, we can still find properties kind of 300, 400, 500,000. Oh, wow. These are single family houses, not just like condos and houses? Exactly. Single family homes with potential development. And what do they rent for in uh, Seattle? Mm, I would say anywhere from like 1,800 to 20, 2,500. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I have a very similar philosophy with you where if you can buy a property, uh, the cash flow portion of it allows you to hold on to it, right? But the true wealth is built through the back end through the appreciation. Exactly. So we have the same mindset there. Yeah. Although it just seems that in the beginning, when you don't have a lot of money, the cash flow route is better and, you know, quote unquote safer because then you don't have this alligator constantly chopping at your butt, <laughs> making you pay the money for the rent. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Cool. And so since you've been doing this birth strategy, let's talk about your development. Like, how did you get into development? Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, I, you know, in the brokerage side of the business, I started working with a lot of builders, helping them out with land acquisition and then selling the finished homes after they're done building. So while doing that, you know, helping evaluate sites for builders and knowing what they want, you know, I kind of learned the trade by working with builders on the brokerage side and you know, doing my own research, studying land use code. Um, I think land use code is a really big one. Like we talked about the ADUs earlier. I mean, if you know how to creatively optimize a site, you can see value that perhaps other people don't see in a site. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have an example of a deal that you did that you were especially proud of? So, you know, the stuff like I mentioned to you earlier, you know, buying for future rezones, buying for... I would say that's kind of speculative, but buying for known rezones, I mean, that's one way. And then knowing how to optimize the new, you know, land use codes. 
you know, different sites, being able to take a single family site, you know, one of my projects, I took a single family site and then, you know, was able to build uh, using the ADU code to put an additional unit on there. Hmm. And how long was it before you were comfortable enough to leave your full-time tech job to, you know, do your brokerage and real estate investing pursuits full-time? Yeah, at that point, it was already a few years in where, you know, I I was more active in doing real estate brokerage than working in tech. So, you know, as far as the financing piece goes, right, if you're self-employed, like if you're a broker, you generally need to have two years of income in order to qualify for a conventional loan. So the way that underwriters calculate income if you're self-employed, if your second year is better than the first year, then they take the average of the two years, the net income from the two years, not the gross income. And if your second year is not as good as your first year, then they take the lower of the two. So it's very conservative how the income calculation works as far as underwriting. Whereas if you're working in the you know, W-2 job, you get a new job that pays more, you can instantly use that income on day, you know, basically day one, you get your first pay stub, you can, you know, use that new income. Yeah. Yeah. It was at a point, you know, where real estate kind of took over as far as um, significance of it. Yeah. Like basically your income from real estate was higher than what you were getting at your W-2 job. Yeah. Consistently for a few years. Wow. Well, like for example, I have a friend and he, he might even be listening to the show right now, but he is a very eager young engineer. He works at Amazon and he has only been working for maybe a year or so and he wants to quit. <laughs> you know, he wants to quit because he wants to do real estate full time. And a lot of the older you know folks are telling him, hey, slow your roll. Uh, you have a lot of time to build your wealth. So, you know, like just for perspective, how long did it take for you to leave your job to do real estate full time? About six or seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Six, seven years, you're able to build a significant nest egg in a tech company. And you're also building wealth through a second stream of revenue, which is your business before you left. Right, right, exactly. And I think I think that gave me a good basis to do what I'm doing now. Yeah. You had some already started. I've seen other people because I know a lot of other investors. Some people, they, you know, they didn't start with the tech job. You know, they just started investing and they're doing great right now. But I think as far as probability goes, I think you are you have better odds if you start with that W-2 income and then leverage off of that to pursue kind of what you want to pursue. Mm-hmm. I could be biased because that's what I did. So I think it's, you know, I think it works. Yeah, it seems like you're doing pretty well for yourself. It's a safer strategy, I think. Exactly. And then especially like right now with the changing market, I think it's better to be safe than to, you know, be sorry. Absolutely. And speaking of your current projects, are you funding them all yourself or what is your strategy for like raising funds? Well, yeah, yeah. Myself or, you know, loans, you know, we work with, you know, conventional lending, you know, local banks, and then also, you know, hard money depending on the project. Got it. So for your development projects, you're not taking in like private investor money. You're basically using your own or like a hard money lender to do the deal. Yeah. For new construction, uh, I work mostly with community banks that are local to this area and they, you know, they focus on construction lending. Yeah. Yeah. And are the terms like has construction lending terms changed over the past few weeks or months because of this whole coronavirus situation? Yeah. As of right now, the most Banks I've talked to, they're on hold as far as new construction financing. I think some hard money lenders are doing the same. 
maybe you can chime in as far as your experience with heart money. Right. Yeah. I mean, it feels like money dried up pretty much overnight, which is pretty sad. Uh, as of this recording right now. Yeah, exactly. Luckily for us, it seems like there might be, uh, you know, a, a light at the end of the tunnel because they're talking about reopening and uh, our shelter in place might be over within a couple of weeks. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. But in the meantime, how has the Seattle market been affected? Because I think you guys were actually like, you know, quote unquote, worse than we were maybe by a week or two. And yeah, so I just want to get your opinion on how the Seattle market was doing. I think so far, so earlier this year, we started getting bidding, a lot of bidding wars. And then after the you know whole virus situation hit, they were still moving. You know, houses were still going pending, you know, relatively quickly. I think the number of offers might have gone down, you know, so instead of having like, you know, three, four, five or 10 offers on a house, it ended up being like one or two. So then the bidding war velocity wasn't as high as, you know, say a month and a half or two months ago. Yeah. Did you see like a sharp dip in the amount of new listings or like a lot of properties getting withdrawn or canceled? Not really. Not really. I think things are still pretty active. There was a point in time where real estate brokerage here in Washington was deemed not essential. And then, you know, within a matter of days, the governor changed the decision and made it essential again. So, you know, of course, with some limitations, but as far as, you know, buyers that are serious and sellers that are serious, there's still deal flow going. Nice. You know, I've been looking at the real estate market here to just see if there's going to be a crash. It seems so far, it's not that bad. Like prices have steam, prices have stayed relatively steady. And I'm not sure if that's just because the properties are closing or the ones that were pending kind of before shelter in place. So it's only going to be like this week going forward that we're going to see the actual prices be reflected. And like a bunch of new listings went down, a bunch of property got withdrawn or canceled. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. The properties that are closing now, they went under contract about a month ago. So, you know, situations could have changed, but then I'm still seeing a lot of pending activity right now going from active to pending. So people are still making offers and offers are still getting accepted. So it's kind of, you know, time will tell, I guess. Right. Are you listing any properties right now? Yeah, I, I have some listings right now and they are all but one are pending. So. Wow. Yeah. But maybe I guess the difference is you're not seeing as many offers at the same time. So it's not like a crazy bidding war situation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But are the properties selling for what you kind of expected them to sell for? Or are they like, are the sellers kind of taking a loss? No, you know, we price it at market value and, you know, we, some we got more than that. Some we're getting, you know, market value for what we saw about a month and a half to two months ago, you know, things were getting bid up. We priced it at market and people bid it up above market kind of setting new records. Wow. So comparing to, you know, those records set from transactions that went pending a month and a half ago to now, I think there, there, there is a little bit of a drop. But, you know, depending on kind of where you set your expectation at, right? If you set your expectation at kind of a steady state market price, then, you know, it hasn't really changed much. But, you know, if you're comparing the, the peaks, then, you know, I would say that there's some change more or less. Yeah. There's also like the spring months. Typically during the spring, we do see our market improve. I feel like because of coronavirus, it just kind of halted, even though it's doing really well in January and February of this year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And would you say that most of your 
a business is from the brokerage side or is it from like the development or the birth strategy flip projects? Well, I would say, you know, I, I treat everything I do, you know, seriously. I do quite a bit of brokerage and then also, you know, conventional lending as a mortgage broker. As far as the burrs and the rentals, those are more longer term plays. So I really don't see an immediate, you know, benefit from those. It's just a, like a long-term investment. Some people like stocks, some people like mutual funds. I just like to buy rental properties. You know, development and the, you know, fix and flip. I mean, they're, you know, they're another kind of more real-time pillar of the business. Nice. How are you able to create your own brokerage while working a full-time job? You know, you get the license and then you, you start hustling, right? So uh, were you part of like some bigger team before, like Keller Williams or Remax and then branched off? No, I, I was always with a boutique real estate firm, kind of a local real estate firm. And, you know, I learned mainly learning by doing. Very cool. Like just on the weekends and nights, right? Because I, like I said, we're in like very similar situations where I was working a full-time tech job. I was flipping kind of while working at my full-time job and buying properties over in Jacksonville. Now I'm in this kind of weird situation where I have my license. I'm actually going to take my broker's exam. So we'll see how that goes. And then I'm actually not sure if I'm going to be using it. And it seems like it's possible as long as you're willing to put in the effort to, you know, do a career and also do the real estate side if you put in the energy for it. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, with any license, especially in our industry, it's a good tool to have. You know, it's like in tech, some people, you know, try to be full stack and learn different programming languages and, you know, learn different skill sets there but for, for us in real estate i mean yeah there's skill sets to learn but then you know having those licenses you know if an opportunity comes up then you can you know use that tool in your toolkit and you know build a business out of it yeah and it's actually pretty nice to have access to the mls and the tax records so you can just pull up whatever you want without having to ask someone else for it yeah definitely it's, it's a lot more convenient you can see the mls history and you know, do more research, have more visibility in the markets. Exactly. And speaking of like, you know, past training, I was actually so bored during my shelter in place that I decided to code again because I'm trying to create some automated system to like do skip tracing. And, you know, it's like, it's kind of fun to have that ability to to do that. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you use any of your old like uh, engineering training for your current businesses? Not directly. I felt the same way. Like I left my full-time job back in June of last year and uh, I felt this mental atrophy as like, we're not using those those skills. It's good to just keep it up, I guess. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So Adrian, what's next for you guys? Well, you know, we still have the projects in the pipeline. The businesses are still running, you know, brokerage, mortgage, the new builds, flips, everything's, you know, it's still in the pipeline. So we try to minimize the impact of the current situation and, uh, you know, adapt to um, this current environment. Yeah. Did you guys get shut down because of the whole shelter in place situation where you can't do uh, any more construction work on your projects? Yeah, construction is halted, but then, you know, brokerage and mortgage, they're both considered essential businesses. Yeah. For your mortgages, I heard like Chase had their huge like situation where they're not doing jumbo loans anymore. They're raising the standards from 620 to 700. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I heard about that over the weekend. 
you know, I haven't confirmed the accuracy of it, but based on what I understand, it, they're definitely raising their standards. They're not, you know, doing any loans that are less than 20% down or less than 700 credit score. But, you know, as a result of that, there are a lot of opportunities for other players to take on that business. I mean, because I think Wells Fargo and Bank of America can just take over, right? It's not like the end of the world. Right. And then, you know, myself as a mortgage broker, we have access to about 30 different wholesale lenders. Um, they all do loans, you know, based on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines. Some have their overlays and whatnot. But, you know, for the most part, it's still a lot more flexible in the broker channel compared to the retail banks. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason why you decided to do mortgage loans as well as uh, you know being a real estate broker? Yeah, it just seemed like a good fit. You know, the two are related, and part of the thought process was to be able to kind of provide a one-stop shop experience for clients. You know, whether they're investors or retail clients, and kind of you know give them the same level of service across you know both the financing piece and the you know real estate side of things. Nice. Are you doing like constant outreach to new clients or is it kind of like a referral based system now? I do some lead generation, you know, some outreach and then a lot of the business comes from referrals. Nice. Do you have like a pretty big team or is it just kind of you for your boutique company? Yeah, mostly just myself. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you have a pretty good thing going. So it's very exciting to hear your story. Yeah, I mean, every day is a new learning experience. And, you know, it's a lot of fun, definitely. Very nice. Uh, Do you have any last tips that you'd like to give to our listeners before we uh, finish up our show today? Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to be adaptive to the current, you know, market situation, um, especially now. And, you know, be, be able to have multiple exit strategies on the project because in this i would say spring and summer of 2018 things took a turn for a little bit here in the seattle market you know at that time i had flips on going so you know had to pivot you know strategy what i end up doing i ones that didn't sell i turned them into rentals luckily they work out very well as rentals as well so it's always good to have you know, multiple exit strategies in mind when you're pursuing a project, you know, as far as what you would do with that project and then how you finance a project. Because uh, sometimes, you know, the market, the way the market behaves, it's, you know, you can do as much modeling as you can, do as much, you know, kind of calculating the numbers, but sometimes just things are unpredictable. So being able to have more control of kind of different exit strategies, I think that's, you know, important. And, you know, one other way to alleviate that is to have multiple streams of income. You know, if one thing's not doing so well, then you have, you know, one or two other things that that could help you, you know, when you need it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because I think having multiple exit strategies is very important, especially if you're doing something relatively risky, like flipping homes, because like you said, the market can just turn on you, and then you can't sell the property. So you need to have a way to hold on to it. So in my case, at a flip didn't go so well. And we converted it into an Airbnb. Right now, Airbnbs are doing poorly because of the whole uh, coronavirus shelter-in-place situation. So we also have to pivot that strategy a little bit as well. All these things just mean that we're handling our business as best we can. And having multiple streams of income is very, very important because there's a lot of people here who had one job and they lost that job or they're furloughed because of shelter-in-place. Whereas I'm part of like some YouTube mastermind and those guys on YouTube, they're like, oh, I'm chilling. I have an extra like 
couple thousand a month because of YouTube. So you got to have the extra business. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely good to have you know multiple exit strategies and multiple you know businesses that you can leverage off of and. You know that helps as far as you know being able to grow is in a good market then you know you'll be ahead because you have the multiple you know streams of incomes and being able to set you know more aggressive targets without um adding too much on the risk side of things exactly all right adrian how can people get in contact with you email phone text social media just you know google me or i'll leave my contact info with you and put it to the show notes. Cool. All right, Adrian, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a real pleasure having you on and thanks for giving us some more insight about the TL market. Sure, thanks for having me. Cool, take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. There are 24 hours in a day. If you wanna make something happen, spend those hours wisely. Adrian loved the concept of owning his own business at a young age and realized that you need to hustle to be successful. He spent his days working at a full-time job and his nights working on his real estate business. So if you want to be successful in this industry, you can still do it with a full-time job if you're willing to commit your nights and weekends to the goal. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.